So I should begin by apologizing once again that my voice is not very good. <clears throat> Last week I was speaking very quietly because my voice wasn't good and then I got better and then I got worse. <laughs> Today was an all-day trust meeting and uh, lots of talking about important matters. And so um, I hope, uh, Bill, you can hear me at the back. That's good. Okay. Very good. Also, I, before speaking, I want to make a dedication this evening of our puja. Uh, Ajahn Vajiro's father passed away, I just heard earlier today. And so I'd like to make a dedication of our puja and uh, let Ajahn Vajiro know that. And also uh, a dedication to um, Ajahn Sumato. Today is his birthday. It's uh, a good thing to reflect on. For instance, where we would be without him, yeah, um, the daring gestures he made and the commitment that he's made uh, and the offerings that he's made on our behalf. Uh, and so uh, when there's uh, occasions like birthdays, it's a good, good excuse to, to dwell on thoughts of gratitude. And while we're on that theme also, it was Mick Jagger's birthday yesterday. I don't know, those probably you all knew, he was 65 yesterday. Um, we could dedicate puja to him as well. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Mick Jagger, 65, isn't that something? He's on an old age pension now. He gets, what is it, 140 pounds a week or something? Should be all right. Hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> but um, what I wanted to talk about this evening was... Um, it was uh, no joking matter, really, because uh, there have lately been uh, a number of friends and uh, personal friends, and also of the community who who have come up against very difficult times. And um, but what has been what has been inspiring for me and and for them, and, and what I've appreciated their sharing is. Where they turn when they when they really feel at the end of their tether, you know, when you really feel, you know, you've exhausted all the possibilities, where do you turn? And and for, for several of these people who are really in very difficult circumstances, it's uh, it's been very inspiring. Um, even moments of joy, it's strange to say, in the midst of great suffering to see that we're not victims, you know, that uh, things can get really bad. But if we've trained ourselves, if we've done what we're encouraged to do, there is a refuge. And it's not the Buddha image, as, as somebody was saying, that they, they found that even in the midst of, of the hell that they feel they're in the midst of, uh, there is a stillness, there's a silence that they can, from time to time, become conscious of. Yes, they lose it, but but having known that and to remember that. 
um, some of you are already aware of, um, I think I spoke recently, the, the, uh, the accident that our stone carver friend Martin Riley had, um, where he nearly lost his whole left arm. And for a stone carver um, of such skill and, and enthusiasm as Martin, that's, that's tragic. And, but I got a letter from him a couple of days ago speaking with, with such, such joy, actually, real joy. And, and gratitude for the reminders he received, but also not just the reminders, but the ability to turn towards the refuge, you know, that the conditions can be absolutely, absolutely disagreeable. And yet, you know, if we don't get lost in the conditions, then there are other possibilities become available to us. And so... So this is the this is the spiritual possibility. This is what the Buddha was encouraging us to do, to to remember that that there is some work to do. Really, there's some work to do, Uh, and not to wait until, like Martin, you, you you round the corner on your motorbike on a lovely sunny afternoon, having a great time, and collide with a tractor and a hedge trimmer. Yeah. And don't wait until that happens. Yeah. Because that's easy to do. Yeah. And that's easy to do. And that's perhaps what I'd like to reflect on this evening is 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 how um, how unfortunate it is really if we just if we just take that route, if we just go down the easy route. Uh, that's what the world is all about. Yes, uh, yeah. somehow trying to uh, control the world is going to make us safe. There's, there's you know, part of us, you know, I know in my own mind, there's still that feeling that if only I can control everything. Yeah. The monastery, you know, if only I can just control everything in the monastery. And I've tried, believe me, I've tried. I try to control all the monks and there's no way, not possible. Summon errors and anagaragas. The buildings, the builder, the workers, the building inspector. There's no way, you can't control our building inspector. There are things that no matter how hard we try, and yet isn't it strange that we keep trying? You know, the evidence, there's clear evidence that you can't control the world. The relationships that we have, the body, just to update you on Ajahn Abhinando's condition, you know, who would very much like to control the cancerous tumour out of his body without having to undergo the surgery, and not possible. And uh, he'd like to control his healing process, not possible. So he's uh, going through what anybody would be going through after such major surgery. However, he's not going through it just like anybody else because there, there is something else happening there. And that's, that's the something else. It's, it's when we know how to, how to not believe. I was going to say we know how to turn inwards, but sometimes we're still full and we still think that turning outwards is it. The conditioning to turn outwards is so strong. And if we can control our bodies, if we can control our diet, if we can control our exercise, if we can control other people, 
if we can control the government, if we can control our finances. And no matter how much effort we put into all of those things, still circumstances sometimes conspire out of our control. If we're talking about controlling outwardly. All the encouragement these days for litigation. I think I saw on the on the uh, the, the tube in Newcastle. There's big lettering across the tube, you know, advertising solicitors these days. You know, it never used to be able to advertise solicitors. Now solicitors can advertise and and sell their products, and and I'm sure a lot of them are selling good products, but. Um, yeah, some of them are not selling good products, and 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 certainly the culture of litigation is a, is, a, is something that's really worth questioning. It's like, and the the law, like the government trying to control everything. Did you hear? They read that story about that guy in Wales, Gordon Williams, and his mate got fined for having a fag in his car. You know, in his own car with his mate. You know, it wasn't even weed. I mean, it was tobacco. I could understand if they stopped him for smoking weed, but it was just having a fag in his car with his mate, and they find him. Now, maybe there's some of you who are into this, you know, I don't know, perhaps there's a good reason, but I can't see it. You know, that degree of control, really, to me, you know, it seems a bit much, really. Uh, and, or that there was a, another story which I rather liked, that uh, guy in, Aust- in, in, in America, was his name Keith uh, Wallendorski, uh, some some chap who um, got upset with his lawnmower in, 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 in Milwaukee or somewhere, got, up, got upset with his lawnmower and shot it. He shot his lawnmower. Did you see the story? He got upset with his lawnmower because it wouldn't start. Out the backyard of his, of his property, mowing his lawn, or trying to mow the lawn, the lawnmower wouldn't start. I know the feeling. So he got his gun out and shot the thing. Okay, well, a little bit heedless. What happened? They arrested him. They arrested him. He's faced with an $11,000 fine or, or six and a half years in prison. Yeah. I mean, what's the world coming to? <laughs> yeah, well, partly I'm joking, but you know this whole idea that somehow if we can control everything, that it's all going to be okay? Where's it coming from? Yeah, well, it's coming from this, this fundamental delusion that, that conditions can be controlled, that we are in charge, and we're not. The evidence is there, no matter how hard we try, how long we try, we can't control things the way we want to. Even in the monastery we have people doing that. People you know, hear the Buddha's teachings and, and get inspired, and so they come and live in the monastery. And I was, I was thinking today, somebody was talking about some situation that came up, and I was reminded of this incident in our monastery in Chithurst where you know, often the Anagarikas, and in the early days, the monks also used to share rooms. We didn't have many rooms. And it seemed actually quite a right to share rooms. There's nothing wrong with it. But when you're sharing a room with somebody, you know, it takes a certain kind of effort, doesn't it? And what happens when we don't get our own way? When we can't control things? What happens? I remember this one incident where there was this, uh, these two Anagarikas were sharing a room, and, and one of them liked getting up at three o'clock in the morning. You're very enthusiastic, very diligent meditator. Get up at three o'clock in the morning, go and have a shower, and come back. And the other one didn't like getting up until he absolutely had to. 
three o'clock in the morning was more than he could handle. And it's just one day too many. And, and what did the guy do? He picks up the guy's alarm clock and throws it through the window, smashes the window. Yeah. What was that all about? Yeah. That's basically, that's, that's what Buddhists speak. Is that's an animal reaction. That's not a human reaction. That's an animal reaction. It's an extreme one, but that's what we can do if we're still believing in this idea that actually we've got a right to expect to be able to control our world. So the Buddha addressed this very clearly, regularly, and, and, and spoke in many ways over and over and over again about how the refuge is not out there. The refuge is not in the world. And, and how if we, want a real, if we want to find real security then we've got to not look outwards, but look inwards. Mm. Now, I know we've all heard this, but you know, the fact is we still do look outwards. So I think it's really good to just regularly, over and over again, especially when we get caught up, when we, when we do something like, well, perhaps not throw your bedmate's alarm clock through the window, that's a bit extreme, but when you do something you know, by way of heedless reaction, you say, what's going on there? And, uh, and then reflect on the... the the source of the suffering is not out there. It can look like that. It can really feel like that. But that's just because of the way we're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. There is another way of thinking about it. And so, so yeah, as I was saying, the Buddha encouraged this. Um, you know, reflecting inwards, looking inwards. Atahiyatano nato kohinato parosiya is a very famous quote that well, Ajahn Chah used to say over and over again when I was a junior monk listening to Dhamma talks by Ajahn Chah you listen to the tapes of him now Atahi Atano Nato Kohi Nato Parosiya always say this over and over again which means you know, one's self is one's own refuge nobody else can be your refuge Atta Atahi Atano Nato one's self is one's own refuge Kohi Nato Parosiya nobody else can be your refuge it can sound like a bit scary from our cultural conditioning you know, oh I'm going to become selfish so oh, no, this is a question of emphasis you know, getting the priority right and then there are many many examples of where the Buddha taught this you know, so this wasn't just you know, he gave the special teaching of a few people. This is the teaching. This is the teaching the Buddha gave. You know, probably many of you are familiar with the story of the, the 30 princes that went out for a, a picnic in the woods and having a, a jolly good time. And, and uh, well, only 29 of these princes had wives. And so the one that didn't have a wife, well, they, they invited a stranger, you know, a girl, to come along and be a kind of make up a nice party. And, and so they all go off to the woods and. I don't know what they were getting up to, but anyway, they were having a, getting probably, they were probably drunk and, and playing around. And anyway, there's one stranger in the party snuck off the side and actually stole their valuables, you know, their Rolex and, and their Blackberry and whatever, and, uh, and disappeared. And so when, when these princes started to sober up and they found all their stuff had been necked, they, obviously they got pretty upset and, and so they ran off to try and, find this, uh, this, this, this young woman who had stolen their things. And in the process, they came across the Buddha sitting meditating under a tree. And the Buddha 
uh, asked them who they're looking for, or they asked him where this girl was or something anyway. He said, well, the judge had read their mind and he judged the time was right to actually give a little teaching here. They may have been having a bit too much to drink and so on, but he still figured actually this is the time to point out the teachings. And so he did. He asked them. He said, well, what what do you think is more important, searching after material security and possessions or searching after the self? Mm -hmm. And he got it right because these 29 princes and these 30 princes did on this occasion. So, well, actually, yeah, there's no end to seeking after material things, but really trying to find the true self is worthwhile. And so he gave a graduated teaching, and and he didn't, by the way, um, talk about a higher self, as some people like to mistranslate the story. There are those of you that have read these things might have come across um, some of these. I think Kumaraswamy was one of them. Who, mistranslated what the Buddha was saying and, and tried to say the Buddha was advocating a higher self, a higher utter. That wasn't the way the Buddha was using the word at all. Uh, he, he was talking about an orientation of attention. He said, instead of looking out there for things to control the world by possessions and, and so on, to look inwards, to look into one's own inner reality. And he gave this graduated teaching on this occasion. He talked about dana and generosity and cultivating this sense of oneself being generous and oneself keeping precepts and talked about how to oneself to be reborn in, in celestial realms and, and then also uh, for oneself to cultivate renunciation and then also went on to talking about uh, you know, examining the, the dangers in oneself indulging in essential pleasures you know, it's interesting I always find it inspiring when when the Buddha talked about these things, that he, because he'd been through this thing of taking a position for and against pleasure, you know, he was great at indulging in sensual pleasures, did it for 29 years, very successful, but he exhausted it and it didn't work, and so then he went the other way and took a position against sensual pleasures, and that didn't work either. And then, as we all know, thankfully, he realised the middle way, and so he wasn't taking a position against sensual pleasures and telling these princes, oh, you know, you shouldn't be having a good time with your wives out in the forest and eating grapes and getting drunk. He didn't do any of that moralizing business. He just pointed out the dangers of getting lost in sensual pleasures. Yeah. And the advantages of other ways. I mean, this is classic Buddhist teaching, not moralizing or preaching, but pointing out what's skillful and what's unskillful. Or the uh, very famous uh, quote from the Buddha is, is, dwell as an island unto yourself, be an island unto yourself. So there's all these, all these references that the Buddha was, was giving consistently throughout the scriptures, uh, over and over again. He, he's, he's trying to re-educate our attitude, so instead of looking outwards, you, you look inwards. The Mahamangala Sutta, you know, where what happens was, well, the scriptures tell us was a celestial being appeared to the Buddha and came to see the Buddha and said, please tell us about the most auspicious signs or the greatest blessings of the Mahamangala and, and probably was looking for, you know, what's the best astrological configuration to get born under or, or some such thing. And uh, the Buddha didn't have any of that at all. Rather, he talked about actually how to cultivate the heart and mind you know, gaze through this graduated teaching, how to look after yourself. Yeah. One's self properly directed. One's self rightly directed. So he did, he talked about the self. 
He also talked about not-self, and here's the quandary, that if we don't really practice these teachings, and we hear the Buddha talking about looking after yourself, cultivating yourself, paying attention to yourself, being a refuge unto yourself, that the self is the only refuge, if we just look at this stuff conceptually, we don't get a feeling for what's really being pointed to, well, then we can get very confused. And people do get very confused over the teaching on Anatta. But if we practice, uh, saying in the uh, introduction to the meditation, they were disciplining attention by way of experiment, by way of interest. We're not trying to prove somebody's argument. We're not, gonna, we're, not, we're not trying to defend something because we think the Buddha is best, so we've got to prove he's right. But no, out of interest in our experience of suffering. Yeah. Now, if you're not suffering or you're not aware you're suffering, actually there's not much you can do. The Buddha's teaching is some use, but... You know not of profound use. Where the Buddha's teaching becomes of profound use is when you're having a profoundly difficult time. And it's also very useful when you're having a mildly difficult time. But it's profoundly useful when you're having a very difficult time because it it keeps reminding us, you know, don't believe in the stories. And the stories are always going out, the papancha, they're always the proliferation of because of this, because of that, and it's always out there, and there's always this... No, no, turn it the other way. Go inwards. Listen inwards. Feel inwards. And quieten the, the mind down until the thinking goes quiet. It's still attentive, very attentive. And then the mind says, but what about this? And says, no, no. Even, and actually when you're having an exceedingly difficult time can sometimes be the very best time to sit. To Even when you feel like you're on fire with, with, with whatever it is, with rage, with passion, with fear, with anxiety, and with sadness to, to hopefully have prepared ourselves beforehand and then in the midst of that suffering to sit with it and see if we can just inhibit the tendency to take sides just a little bit. Yeah. The tendency is to take sides. That's the way of the world. Taking sides for pleasure, taking sides against pleasure. Always trying to control the world. Yeah. How dare they do that? Yeah. Yeah. If only I hadn't done this. Mm. So if we exercise according to the encouragement the Buddha gave us, not taking fixed positions for or against anything, then we will discover, we do discover that, that it is possible to let go of these positions. We don't have to believe in the tendency to want to control. And what happens as we do that, we, we, we fall backwards into what is a, a, a disposition of trusting, trusting in the power of mindfulness and investigation. Instead of trusting in our willful ability to control conditions and get what we want and make things be how we want them to be, if only I could get things back to being how they used to be. Uh, you know, when you're really in the midst of taking the consequences of having made a bad mistake, you say, if only I could get back, yeah. you know, that doesn't help. And so, okay, we're not going to just moralize and tell ourselves that doesn't help, but rather by way of investigation, just let go of that and come back and see if we can find that middle place, that place of stillness, a place of deep listening, where we hear these voices, we don't become them. Mm-hmm. And then we're, in, then we're investigating conditions. We're not trying to control conditions. The best way to understand conditions is... Uh, 
it's like, it's like create a, a frame of reference, create a, a vast field of awareness, and then relax and just let things go in that. Yeah. I think it was, was it Suzuki Roshi who, who talked about uh, if you want to understand, was it, you want to understand sheep, you just build a good fence around them, then you just lean on the fence and watch them. You know, if you try and understand sheep by holding on to all the sheep, I mean, how far are you going to get? Yeah. If you don't build a fence, well, that's not going to, you know, you're not going to understand this is going to run away, you know, what sheep are like. So if you want to understand sheep, you build a good, secure fence and then relax, just lean on the fence and, you know, and just watch. And see, you come, oh, this one does that, and that one does this, and they come on, they go, and little by little. If you don't have a fence, that is, if we don't feel safe in our commitment to mindfulness and restraint, if we haven't established that containment, well, then we can't relax. Mm. And sometimes we've got to come right back to precepts again. That's why the, you know, the Buddha gave that graduated teaching to those 30 princes. You know. We've got to be established in precepts. Precepts is what establishes boundaries. We know we can say no to ourselves. When we know we can say no to ourselves, then we can say yes. And if we don't know we can say no, well, then we can't really know we can say yes. We can't really deeply relax. We can relax to a certain point and then we get afraid because we can't trust ourselves. Why can't we trust ourselves? Because we don't have the evidence that we're trustworthy because, you know, we so easily cross the boundary when we get to that point. So, okay, so we train in learning how to say no yeah, and learn to trust ourselves and then with a deepening and the, and the, the certainty of a sense of self-trust then there's a deepening of, of relaxation and ease. And even though conditions can be totally chaotic, the feeling of this is terminal, this is terminal. The perception that this will never end. That perception is something we can still relax around. Yeah. This is another condition. Yes, it absolutely can feel like it's eternal. That's, the, that's what eternal hell is. You know, some religion, religions talk about eternal hell. That's when you get into that state and you grasp it. You grasp the condition, the perception of hell. The perception of fear, eternal fear, eternal anxiety, eternal ill will. And when we grasp at that level, it does. It really absolutely feels like eternal hell. And you can believe that it's eternal hell. But we created eternal hell by grasping at it. The freedom is that if we can just do what we need to do to remember, to bear with it long enough until we can let go. Yeah. Use the mindfulness practice of coming back to the body, Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the impulse to believe in the stories can be so strong. Yeah, and that's with all these people that I've mentioned about before who've been going through difficult times. This is this is what they go through. This is what we go through. You know, when you're in the middle of, of suffering, the, the habit to create the stories and believe in the stories, that yes, it's there, it's just so. But it's just a momentum, no judgment. It's It's there because there have been causes for it to be there. There's no judgment in that. But if we can see that it doesn't have to be that way, we don't have to invest and we don't have to believe in it. We don't have to be for it, we don't have to be against it. And and that which sees actually is not suffering. That which sees the tendency to take sides is not having a problem. It's only the one that becomes that has the problems. Even the Buddha's teachings, actually. It's, it's not difficult to make a problem out of the Buddha's teachings. You know, we can hear this and, and we can then 
pick up the Buddha's teachings on, in, in the wrong way and, and, and try too hard to control our minds. You know, instead of looking outwards, we look inwards and we just see all this thinking and, and we think, oh, thinking's a problem. So we take a position against thinking and use meditation to stop thinking. And you can do that. You can you know, come back to the meditation object over and over again with focusing on, on the, the, you know, watching a light uh, and, or, or the concentrating on the breath. And, and really willfully focusing on just any thoughts that come up, just cut them out. Uh, and basically what we're doing is we're thinking that there's something wrong with thinking. As we're doing, we just grasp at the thought there's something wrong with thinking. And sometimes do, people, people do think in Buddhist teachings that that's what we're talking about. There was a, a Japanese teacher, Moranaka Sokoroshi, who I feel very fortunate to have met, a wonderful teacher, he used to come to visit this year, this country every year and, and has since passed away. And, but uh, he told a story about how in their monastery in Japan, uh, well, much the same in, in many Buddhist countries, you get university students will come and stay in the monastery for a limited period of time. And he'd say how sometimes these university students would come and they'd get the idea that, that Zen was all about not thinking. And he said, you know, well, like one example, and I hope I get the details right, he, he was saying how he, he, he uh, told one of these young students to, to go and prepare the bath because, you know, how in Japanese monasteries they have these great big hot tubs and all the monks sit around in these hot tubs because it's so cold and it's all very friendly and, and so on. And so he told this, uh, this young novice monk who was temporarily in the monastery to uh, go and prepare the fire. And so the guy did. He went and, and lit the fire and everything. But there was no water in the tub yeah, and ruined the tub. And uh, he said, well, you know, he says, I over and over again I have to point out to people, actually there's a time to think. You know, sometimes you're supposed to think. But it's how we think. It's how we think. It's like including how we think about the past. You know, talking the way I've been talking this evening, you think, oh, well, he's saying I'm supposed to not think about the past. It's not not think about the past or not think about the future. You know, but it's how we think about the past or how we think about the future. Now, if we're giving emphasis, the right emphasis to ourselves, the right orientation of attention inwardly, you know, then we, we, we come to see this. We come to see the way the way that we hold our thinking by trial and error. Again, the example from the scriptures, the, the Buddha gave this image. He said, it's like, well, actually, you're standing on the bank of a river and there's a boat going down the river and, and somebody was playing a musical instrument. And he used that as an image. He said, just as that musician tunes the instrument, so we tune our attention. And those of you that play musical instrument, you know, you, the guitar or violin or cello or you know, you, you adjust the peg and too tight, it's sharp, you hear it. it hurts the ear. Too loose, it's flat. And then you and then you you know, you're doing this thing until it's and it's beautiful. It's just that. It's just the same. So it's not something we can get with our heads the kind of attention that we pay to our pain, the kind of attention that we pay to our memories of the past, the kind of attention we pay to our speculation about the future. If we're paying the just right quality of attention, there's no suffering. Even when it's painful, there's no suffering. 
Mm. Pain is one thing. Suffering is when we're adding something extra. There's a resistance. There's something that we're doing that's making it off. Mm. And we, we know we're doing it because we're suffering. And one of the ways we're off, compulsively, again, if we have the consistent and right orientation of attention inwardly, we see this, this tendency to, to take sides, you know, for and against ourselves. Yeah. So before it was for and against the world. Well, now, you know, we hear the Buddha's teaching to pay attention to ourselves. So we, go into, so we now we take a position for and against ourselves. I should have known better. Yeah. I've been a Buddhist for how long? And... I shouldn't be suffering now. Take a position against ourselves. See? Or I was right and they were wrong. Take a position for ourselves. But paying right attention to ourselves, and there's many selves actually, there's all these selves getting born and dying all the time, and paying attention to our inner reality, this inner community of beings, you know, right attention, just the same as watching the sheep. Just sit there watching the sheep with this good, secure boundary, that we can trust in. If we get greedy, say, I want to understand them now. I say, well, do you think the sheep are going to do what you want so you can understand them? Well, it's just like that. Our minds are just like that. All these beings that are running around in our minds. You know, maybe it's better to think of them as monkeys than sheep, because sheep are quite placid, actually. In my mind, more like monkeys. It's like a zoo. I get alligators, actually quite a lot of alligators, and bears, and I get all sorts of wild animals running around. <laughs> yeah. But this, you know, over the years, this, my zoo is, 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 is it's reasonably well contained. <laughs> so I feel reasonably safe with it these days. You know, not totally safe. I still have to be careful. So anyway, uh, by way of, hopefully, by way of encouragement this evening, uh, just um, if we ourselves or, or, or in a relationship with others uh, you know, really reach that point of feeling like we're at the end of our tether, just to reflect on what the Buddha was encouraging regards this, you know, the, the tendency to believe that by controlling the world we're going to find happiness is just a bad story. That's just a bad education that we went through. It's not wrong or evil or anything like that. It's just not intelligent. It's not accurate, that's all. We don't have to get indignant about it. Yeah. But again, it's not taking a position inwardly and saying, oh, the world is horrible, you know, I'm just going to pay attention to myself and everybody else can get lost, the world can get lost, I don't care if it all runs down and pollution, so what, it's all going to come to an end anyway, whatever. And You can be living with other people and being thoroughly obnoxious because you're paying attention to yourself and thinking, well, that's what the Buddha said, I am my only refuge and the rest of them can get lost. Well, that's, not, that's going the other way, taking a position, fixed position for ourselves. There is a time, there can be a time, when, yes, we really focus inwardly, and that's what retreats are about. You know, when we have retreat situations, like in a week's time, we have some of you perhaps coming here, joining us on retreat for a week. Strict silence, food is provided. You don't have to think about anything. don't have to make any decisions. There's a bell to get up, bell to chant, bell to sit, bell to walk, bell to eat, bell to drink. Yeah. everything is laid on and clear. Don't have to think about anything. Nobody's going to talk to you or irritate you or anything. Well, not by what they say anyway. And so the in- invitation, the opportunity is to be totally inner. Yeah. Just really focus inward. That's what retreat's about. Yeah. In some retreat situations in Asia, like in some monasteries, and, you know, they, they, they point out there's a sign up on the wall. They say, if the guy in the bed next to you dies during the retreat, just put him under the bed and we'll deal with it after the retreat. 
Don't make a problem out of it. He's died. That's it. Get on with your practice. I mean, he's dead. I mean, you're looking surprised. You know, he's dead. You don't have to worry about it. You know, just have to deal with it after the retreat. And right now, the thing is to watch your mind you know, when you're on retreat. Now, if that happens here, we've got a different way of doing things. The health and safety officer would make a problem out of it. So we don't go to the, quite that extent. But the point I'm trying to make is that when we are in a specially designed situation, we can stop thinking about the world, stop thinking about the government and about the politics and about each other even. You know, just really focus inwardly, and that's a very valuable and precious time. However, that's not the world that most of us are living in most of the time. And so it's getting this middle way, the position of balance, where, yes, you know, the emphasis needs to be looking inwardly for the real underlining underlining causes of suffering. What are we doing? That's turning the pain of life into suffering. But also, because we're living in a relationship, well, there is an appropriate degree of attention that we need to look outwardly. So it's a matter of getting the, the balance right, not taking position for, not taking position against ourselves, but rightly investigating, rightly valuing ourselves. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya